0: In the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Now, the, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms pluck up and to pull down to destroy and to overthrow to build and to plant the word of the lord
1: from the book of hebrews chapter 12 verse 18 to 29 you have not come to something that can be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord.
2: Let's stand together for our gospel reading. A reading from the gospel of St. Luke, chapter 13, starting with verse 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, "'Woman, you are set free from your ailment.' When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, "'There are six days on which work ought to be done.' Come on those six days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all of his opponents were put to shame. And the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. Um, We've been walking through a little kind of mini-series through these words in the lectionary, these passages in the lectionary. We're in the season of ordinary time, still. This is a long season. Ordinary time is the longest season in the church calendar. We'll be in it for a while until we get into late October here. Um, and, uh, And in this season, we'll be walking through just basically the life of faith. Like, what does it mean to be a people of God? And we've done this little series on what is faith? What does it mean to have faith in these difficult times? I think we've heard faith described in a lot of weird ways in the church over the years. Sometimes we equate faith with intellectual um, kind of assent to something. So if I, if I intellectually can grasp something, that means I have faith. Well, unfortunately, that means that a lot of us like lose faith all the time <laughs> because the intellectual is kind of hard in our faith. And then sometimes we think faith is like this superstitious power. That was like the tradition I grew up in, that we can muster up more of it and we can have it and we can claim stuff in our lives if we have faith. But we've talked about a different way of seeing faith. This kind of keep goingness is faith. This holding on to something and, and trusting that there is a better, better world, no matter what we think and no matter what we see at different times. Our Old Testament reading today is particularly close to my heart because it is the verse that my parents gave to me when I was born. Okay? My life verse is in Jeremiah 1. Okay? Um, and they chose this. We called it a life scripture. And we ask you, many of you that have your children uh, dedicated or baptized, we ask you to uh, think of a scripture that might you might speak into the life of your child. Um, verse four is often quoted. You've probably heard this before. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And the first thing that this verse shows us is that God is the subject of the universe. Okay, God is the subject of the universe. If this, if the universe is a sentence, God is the subject. We often talk about God as if he were the object. We, we trust God. We doubt God. We struggle with God. And all of that is fine, but, but on a deeper level, the true deeper nature of things is that God knew us before we ever had faith before we had doubt before we struggled god has been acting way ahead of us way ahead of any of us or of anything he shapes us and he forms us god is the center of life now i don't know about you but i've heard this verse quoted mostly when we talk about the purpose that god has for an individual per- person's life okay which is That's why I have this as a life verse, right? But we often talk about this as, okay, God knew me before I was born. God formed me and he shaped me with a purpose and with a destiny. And of course, all of that is true. But this isn't a verse we're supposed to just pluck out of context and just kind of put on an Instagram or something to to make us feel inspired about how God knew us before everything. There's something around this. There's something to this. This verse is not primarily about you are about me. It's not primarily about our destiny, our purpose individually. It's about God. God works before we exist. God is the one doing the calling. God is the one doing the working, right? And this story is about what this God who was before everything, this God is doing in salvation history in the life of the prophet of Jeremiah and the people of Israel. God chooses So God chooses Jeremiah here. And more broadly, he has chosen a people. He has chosen Israel. And notice, God chooses Jeremiah before he was born. Think about this. God didn't wait to see how Jeremiah turned out before he chose him. (laughs) To see, okay, is he gonna grow up the right way? Is he gonna be too goofy? Is he gonna make some mistakes? Is he gonna be too awkward around people? Maybe I don't really wanna choose him. No, I chose him before the beginning, (laughs) before I knew him, or before he was known. I formed him before he was born. Jeremiah is appointed to be a prophet to the nations, not just to Israel. And this word appointed is important. It means gave, that he was given. Jeremiah was given by God. God is the one who gives. This is his nature. He gave the son. He gives us as the people of God. Giving is what God does. At the center of God's character and his heart is he is the one who gives. He is the self-giving God. God. It is possible to serve a God and believe in a God who is the subject of a sentence, right? He's the subject of the universe, but he's not giving. Think about that. Sometimes we think of God that way. Well, yeah, God runs the show. He's sovereign, but he's like waiting for us to mess up so he can zap us, right? Or he's the God who just, he's the, the harsh judge. That's the end of his character. No, God could be sovereign and a jerk, but that's not who God is. This passage makes it clear. Our God, the subject of the sentence, is the great giver. He's the one who gives himself. Jeremiah was in this unique situation. So prophets, if you read the Old Testament, um, you'll see that prophets are always like countercultural. They're always a little weird. They're always a little off. They push against the dominant culture. And what they do is they call the people of God to who they were created and intended to be. That's who pro- what prophets do. So Jeremiah was part of Israel, but he was part of this tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin was in a unique place because it was close to Jerusalem, the capital, okay? It was close to that. But the tribe was more culturally and politically associated with the northern tribes of Israel who at this point had been scattered, okay? So culturally, they were kind of similar to these scattered tribes. So Jeremiah's in a unique place. He's an insider in that he's part of Israel, but he's also an outsider. He's also in a position to challenge the ruling Establishment. He's in a position to challenge the Davidic kingdom and to call out their structures. He's different. And scholars will tell us that Jeremiah lived, and you just can read it, Jeremiah lived out his identity in a way that was self-differentiated. He wasn't dependent on the people. He knew who he was called to be. He's often called the most human prophet, Jeremiah, because of how much he cries and grieves and and um, laments for God's people or the weeping prophet. So he's not just content with going and being the one who delivers the word of the Lord. No, he feels it in his bones. He, he feels God's heart. He feels God's grief when the people go wrong. Jeremiah's name either means the Lord exalts or another meaning is the Lord hurls. Exalts or hurls. Okay, that, hur- come on, hurls like throws, okay? Stay with me. But think about his parents for a minute. The Lord is central to Jeremiah's name. The Lord is the subject. He is the most prominent idea in Jeremiah's name. And his parents, in naming him Jeremiah, have a hope for him and a dream for him. They either desired that God would lift him up, that he would be a signpost to all people, or if it was God hurls, it's that God would throw him into the world like a javelin. Either picture is amazing, right? It's beautiful. I think one of the major challenges for the Christian is to hold on to our name, to hold on to our identity, to hold on to who we've been called to be and to be part of God's mission rather than following someone else or something else. We're often challenged to define ourselves and our identity by so many other things in our culture. You are this because of your performance. You are this because of how you look or how you shop or whatever it is. We are called to be a people who hold on to who we are. You are not what you produce. Your job and how well you do it, your job is not your identity. You are not your tax bracket. You are not your Instagram profile. That's not your identity. You are called out as part of God's people on mission. That's your name, that's your identity. We do live in a culture where self-esteem is celebrated, don't we? Um, people are told that they should live their truth to not care what other people think, to be all that they can be, that they are number one. So in a sense, our culture tries to inflate our egos, to say that we're valuable on some level, and we can affirm that there's something good in that. But the problem is that when it's empty, when it's just you're valuable just because you are, when there's nothing else backing that up, it doesn't work, right? So we actually, we live in this culture that's trying to inflate self-esteem, but we actually feel way worse about ourselves, (laughs) probably because we lack a basis for that identity. Jeremiah's identity is different. He sees his value not in what he's done, but what, be, what was before what he has done, what was before his life. He came from the God who knew him and formed him and gave him. Jeremiah responds to God's calling by saying, I don't know how to speak, I'm too young, or I'm just a boy, sorry for the verse or the uh, translation difference this morning. That was a copy and paste error situation, but you can, comparing and contrasting is, is always good. Um, but notice that each of the major players in the Bible have significant weaknesses. So if you read the Bible, anybody that God uses, it, they're probably like pretty messed up in at least one area of their lives, all right? So think about this. The Bible doesn't call people who are straight out of central casting for someone that God would use, Okay. So God doesn't look and go, oh, that person, oh, he would be, or she would be perfect. No, God calls people in the midst of their weakness. In fact, a lot of the people that you would look at and go, that is the last person that God should be using is exactly the one who God uses, all right? So for example, Abraham and Sarah, they're too old to have kids, and yet God calls them and their entire calling is dependent on them having kids. Okay, okay. Moses is not a good speaker. His entire calling is that he's supposed to speak to Pharaoh in a profound way. Gideon is, not, is the weakest in his tribe and he's supposed to be strong, God calls him. Hannah cannot have a son. Jeremiah is too young here. Paul, we see Paul's weakness is that he wasn't like other teachers, but also he persecuted Christians, right? He wasn't as good of a speaker, some people didn't like the way that he spoke, and, but then he has this horrible past on top of it, and yet God calls Paul. In fact, we might be suspicious if God calls someone and that person says, yeah, that sounds good. I really think I'd be quite good at that. We might go, uh, I don't know. It's important for us to be ever aware of our weaknesses, I've been preaching now on a regular basis to a congregation for over 13 years. And if you count youth ministry, longer than that. I count youth ministry, they're people too. And yet over the years, I've been aware of a few things, okay? So I probably, I started preaching regularly when I was 22. And I've been aware of a few things that I've heard. So Ashley's grandfather was a preacher himself. And I remember distinctly something he said early on in our marriage. He said, a preacher only begins to find his or her voice at age 30. And he said he could always tell when he heard a preacher that they're like, their authority and their voice just changed. It was just different at age 30. And he said that. Yet another person told me that might be true But people only start to listen to you when you're 35, (laughs) okay? When I was a really young preacher, preaching at my church regularly, there was an older staff member who didn't think I should be preaching. Um, He said that unless someone has had the experience of raising children, they shouldn't preach to people who have had children, now, this was particularly painful to hear considering that Ashley and I have struggled with infertility and we desperately at this point in our lives wanted to have kids, right? So to hear that on top of it was just really, really painful. I also wanted to speak to this guy and to point out some notable preachers who had never raised children, the apostle Paul, Jesus, right? Significant preachers. But, but what this reminds me and what this... I think, points us to is that the point of preaching the gospel is not ultimately us or our experience or even our our skills or our giftings. It is the Spirit enabling us. And the Spirit definitely uses our strengths because strengths were given by God in the first place. So even our strengths are dependent on God. But also God uses our weaknesses I've heard many sermons that were really bad exegetically or theologically or delivered with unhealthy motives. We don't want any of those things, right? We don't, wouldn't encourage any of those things, but God has used that person and that sermon to change people's lives because God works through our weaknesses. Um, Jeremiah was asked to do something he knows he can't do. He says, I'm too young, I can't do this. And that's the whole point. And that is God's assurance to Jeremiah that he will be with him because it's God who qualifies. It's not Jeremiah's experience, his life experience. It's not his skill. God uses us through our weaknesses, not in spite of them. So I wonder if there was ever something in your life that you felt like was just disqualifying about you. You felt like this rules me out. I just can't get past this personality quirk. It seems like it always catches me up in my life and it seems like I can't ever get past a certain point because of this weird thing about my personality. Or I have this past sin in my life that just seems like, I wonder if somebody, if God's holding it against me or if I just can't move forward because of that. Or there's an inadequacy in our life. I wanna challenge you today that that may be the very thing that God works through in your life, that weakness. Because when we get in touch with our weakness, when we recognize that God is the subject, I think we open ourselves up for God to actually work through us. Jeremiah is a prophet and a prophet is one who knows God is working, God's up to something. And the prophet is one who tells the world what he's up to. That's a prophet's job. But think about this, preaching the gospel and living prophetically is not just what I'm doing right now. That's not limited to the Sunday morning space. We are called to live out God's message in the world. All of us, every single one of us. And there will be times when that's hard and times that that's uncomfortable. And in those times where we feel awkward or uncomfortable, we immediately look to our weaknesses. And we go, there's something wrong. Jeremiah says, I'm too young. This is gonna be weird and awkward because I'm too young for this. Yet it's ultimately not your work, it's his work. And this is a major part. Think about a major part of our liturgy on Sunday mornings. I've taken several sermons where I've kind of deconstructed what we do on Sunday mornings and why we do what we do. I'm not gonna do that this morning. But notice, at the end of our gatherings, we don't dismiss you, okay? There's not a school bell that rings and then everybody stands up and leaves, right? There's not a, okay, y'all can go home now, I'm done, right? We don't do that. No, we are sent into the world there's a difference between being dismissed and being sent, right? We are a people who are sent into the world, and that's daunting because we're worshiping this God who is the subject, the living God of the universe, and then we're saying, okay, now go live out that God's call in the world. (laughs) And we're going, what? Us? How do we do that? That's daunting. And the whole point is that we can't do it. We're being sent to do something we can't do because it's Christ's work. And even in our weakness, he invites us. Our Hebrews passage undergirds this by saying we are surrounded by invisible witnesses, assured that the work that we do is part of God's rule and reign that we cannot yet see. And notice the message that Jeremiah is to preach to all nations. So He says, tell the nations this, God says to Jeremiah, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot or pluck up is what we said, which is, I love that. To uproot, to tear down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build and to plant. Okay, Most of what God gives Jeremiah to do is destruction, tear stuff down, pluck it up, tear it down, destroy it and overthrow it, then build and plant. Often in our lives, we are looking for the building and planting part. So so we come to God and we say, God, build and plant in my life. Build something wonderful and beautiful. Plant a garden of hope in my life, of love in my life. But before any building and planting happens, there's destruction. That makes sense if you think about it. Before we build a building, if anybody builds a building... You gotta like clear out the space first, right? I'm not an architect, I don't, you do, right? Like you have to clear out the space. You don't just leave the stuff there. Before you plant a garden, you get all the weeds out of the way, I think. First, we have to clear out what doesn't make sense for the building, right? And then one of the things that's so beautiful is then when the building and planting happens, sometimes we can use the resources from before that we've torn down, but we see them differently. We see them in light of this new building. In our Hebrews text, the author speaks of a shaking where those things that don't last will fall away and the things that are part of God's new world will remain. This is what the word of God does. It shakes us. It shakes away the stuff that doesn't last in our life, the stuff that's weak. God wants to build and plant through our lives and in the world. But it requires first the awareness and the dismantling of the idols in our lives, of the idolatry in our lives, of the things that we've placed in the way of it. And there's great hope here. When we allow ourselves to get out of the way, when we shake that stuff up, as we learn not to trust our own strengths and our own work, God builds and plants through us. So human beings are in this interesting tension. We were created in the image of God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't let any preacher or person tell you that you are a depraved, disgusting worm, okay? No, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has created you good, okay? And at the same time, we are fully dependent on God. We need God. When we forget God, we're in trouble, right? We are broken. That's why how sin has entered into the world, And one of the principles at the core of creation that helps form us by this reality is Sabbath. Um, God gave his people this principle. So Sabbath is this principle of taking one day in our week for worship and for work stoppage. Worship and work stoppage. Why? Because worship and refrain from work both do something really interesting. They both acknowledge that it's God who runs the world, not me. When I stop working, when I worship, I am saying there is something bigger than me. There is God who runs the world and I don't. If I stop working for one day, if I make the effort to worship in community for one day, the world will keep spinning. And even my needs will be met. That's what we believe and we trust it. It's an audacious claim because we live in a society that is overworked. That we work and work and work and we think that if we just work more, we're gonna be more productive, right? So to say, no, I'm not gonna work on one day. I'm not, I'm gonna worship on one day, that's countercultural. I heard an interview a couple of weeks ago after the shooting in El Paso. And the interview was with the creator of a site called 8-Chan. Has anyone heard of this before? Okay. 8-Chan is, well, honestly, I'm not really sure what it is. I don't know about it. I did enough research, though, but it's kind of a chat board kind of service designed where people can really say whatever they want to say anonymously, okay? So it's a celebration of, like, free speech in some ways, Um, and 8chan has become a hub for white nationalist sentiment in our culture. Um, It's really the El Paso shooter posted his manifesto on 8chan before his rampage, and The creator of 8chan doesn't own it anymore. He lives in the Philippines and he now says, he now disowns the site. He says it should be taken down. He's made public statements about that. He says he never thought that this would happen. Um, But the creator of 8chan in an interesting turn of events has now become a Christian. And he was asked, what did you do after you heard about the shooting in El Paso? And I heard this interview with him. What what did you do um, when you heard about that? And the man said that he was grieved. And then he said, and then I went to church, which I do every Sunday, went to church. And it was so interesting in the interview, you could tell that the interviewer was just astonished. So you heard about this event and then you just went to church? What? So as if church would be like kind of an optional thing that you might do sometimes, you might do for inspiration. How could someone just go to church? And I heard a couple of people talking to each other about it and they said, is he trying to seek forgiveness for his part maybe that he played in these shootings? Is he trying to make up for the wrong that he's done by creating this site? But those of us who are Christians, we know that there's something deeper than that because we know that we desperately need God, that we need forgiveness in our life as we pray for what we have done and what we have left undone. Right? The things that we don't even know, the things that we've left undone, we need forgiveness for that. But central to the heart of Sabbath is realizing we are dependent creatures. That nothing he could do in that moment could possibly touch what the God of the universe would be doing in that moment. Sabbath is a submission to God's reality, which is beyond what we can see. Now, I don't know much about the owner of this, the creator of this 8-chan. He might be one of those crazy Christians. I don't know. <laughs> But somehow this rhythm was important to him, that he acknowledged that God is bigger than him. A couple things about Sabbath that are important. First of all, Sabbath is not a day off. It's not the same thing. Why not? Well, what do we do on our day off? When we get our day off of work, we usually get stuff done around the house. We cut the grass. We run errands. That's not Sabbath, okay? Um, now, I realize for many of us that we kind of have to craft Sabbath out of the rest of our week. Not all of us have a clear-cut weekend where we go, yeah, Saturdays are for doing stuff around the house, that's the day off. And Sundays, I worship and I don't do anything else. I realize that that's kind of naive to think that all of us run by that structure. For example, I have a gig that I do on Sundays, okay? So I can't, that's this here, it's a joke, but it's all right. So I, I can't take Sundays off. So I have to borrow from other days in the week and kind of craft Sabbath out of that. Some of you work jobs where you simply have to work seven days a week. You just do. And as your pastor, I'd like you to encourage to encourage you to pray about a way that you could possibly do something different. But I understand that there are sometimes there's no ways around this. Like you can't call in sick every Sunday and that be your Sabbath. That's not gonna work, right? You have to figure out how to borrow time from other days. But this principle of Sabbath is so critical. And I would suggest we think it's so hard in our modern world, it was probably harder in the ancient world. Because what that meant is you couldn't till your soil on the Sabbath, which meant if you were rained out on certain days or if a predator came and ate your crops and you got behind for the week, you couldn't make it up on the Sabbath day. You had to rest, okay? That's hard, God knows that human beings need reforming rituals that orient us towards him. We need something embodied that shapes us. Otherwise, we'll be formed by competing narratives of consumerism and materialism and individualism. In Jesus's day, many of the religious leaders had taken the principle of Sabbath, and they like, so to speak, they put it under a microscope. So they created like measurements for how much work can a person do in order to still keep the Sabbath, okay? So there are all these really specific ways and they were strict about it. And the reason why is they wanted to make sure they were honoring God and they also believed that through honoring God, they would be delivered from oppression. So we have to do everything right in order to honor God and so he will deliver us. But this had a social dimension to it too. It was a way of separating the good Jews from the bad ones. It was a way that the religious leaders could keep their stature of power, they could keep their influence and their holiness, and they could keep themselves separate from everybody else. So they interpreted the laws for the people, which is kind of interesting, because they would interpret the laws, they would tell the people this is the right interpretation of the laws, and they'd assure them, don't worry, we're keeping them, (laughs) right? But they're also sneaky about it. So for example, they were super specific about the kinds of knots you could tie up your animal with on the Sabbath. So there are certain types that are just too much work. And then there are certain types that are okay. And here are some basic chores you can do in your house, but you can't do anything else. Jesus is teaching in our gospel passage in one of the synagogues, and there's a woman who's there. And she probably was a well-known local character. Like people knew who she was. And it says she was crippled. She was bent over double. So this is serious, like serious chiropractic work here. Like she's bent over double. Another translation is that she had a spirit of weakness, okay? Which probably meant no one could explain medically why she was bent over double. None of the doctors at that time could figure it out. Some people suggest today that this could be a psychological condition. That maybe somebody had persistently abused her verbally or physically when she was younger until her twisted up emotions communicated themselves to her body and she found she couldn't even get straight. Think about that for a moment. Think about people who you might know in your life who are bent double. They have been so abused and hurt and beaten that it's come out in some way, rage, addiction, even just a sour countenance. Constantly, right? How about entire systems in our world that have been bent double because of oppression? If you think about um, this month, many of you may have seen this in the news or whatever. But but this month is commemorates. I don't even know if commemorates is the right word, but um, 400 years since the first slave ship carrying African slaves came to the United States, the the um, New World at that time. And that was 1619, August of 1619. And if you think about how that has affected the systems and the structures in our country and in our world, one of the things that I hadn't fully realized until this week was when the United States first, 1770s, when the United States kind of first began to exist as a country, signing the Declaration of Independence and all that, one of the major criticisms of the European countries of this new country was these colonists are talking a lot about freedom over and over again and yet they are a slave-driving country. What does that mean? What does that look like? Um, And I think that as we see how that has affected systems and structures in our world and how we've treated people of other uh, skin colors, different skin colors in our world, um, I think that we see that not only does this happen in individual lives, but this bent double, this oppression and abuse can actually impact systems. So Jesus sees this woman, And like with Jeremiah, he notices, he says, it is God who sees. Jesus calls her out and he sets her free. Jesus doesn't wait. He heals the woman with a simple touch. And the synagogue president kind of freaks out in this moment. He gets, we think maybe he gets jealous or something because Jesus has all the attention. So he starts raising people against Jesus. He quotes these verses about the Sabbath in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And so he cites the principle of Sabbath. You're not to work today. This is God's day. This is what human beings need. This is the Sabbath And it was generally believed that only in extreme circumstances, when somebody was about to die, then maybe you could give them medical care on the Sabbath day. But that's not this woman. You can't give her medical care today. This is a violation. So what Jesus does is he says, y'all are hypocrites. You're play acting. Why? Because the Jewish leaders would untie their animal on the Sabbath in order to give their animal a drink. But Jesus is healing a woman. He's setting her free on the Sabbath. Some of the ways that people got around the Sabbath laws were just silly. So you were allowed to give your animal a drink of water in your home, but you couldn't take the animal to a watering hole. So one of the things people did is they went to the local watering holes and they built a shelter that was a home (laughs) over the watering hole so that they could give their animal a drink. It was just silly. So he's saying you're hypocrites. You're not even following your own rules really. And yet here's a woman who needs to be set free. That's the whole purpose of the Sabbath and you're getting upset about that. There is no better day to heal than on the Sabbath. And then he calls her a daughter of Abraham. Like with Jeremiah, God sees her and he names her. You are part of God's family. You have this identity. And by naming her, Jesus is saying he wants to do for all of Israel what he has done for this poor woman, that liberation is the name of the game that you are part of God's family and we are setting you, God is setting you free. The liberating message of the kingdom of God is that in Jesus, there is healing. The leaders of Israel were so concerned with creating tight boundaries, with identifying who the insiders were and the outsiders were, they couldn't see or admit their own weakness. In a strange way, by trying to get people to follow God in a specific way, They had made it about their work and not about God's work. My prayer for us today is this. My prayer is that we might be a people who live in the reality that God is the subject of the world and of our lives. God is not dependent on us. (laughs) We are dependent on God. In God's love and grace, he sees us and he names us. So I wonder if you're here today and you feel unseen you feel beaten down. My prayer for you is to know the God of the universe sees you even when it feels like no one else does. And he has a name for you. You are a son. You are a daughter in God's family. And that's now the primary thing about you. You have been named by the one God of grace. And the beauty of that is as we live as the people of God, as we're sent into a broken world, we learn to see people as he sees them and name them as he names them. That every person we see is a son or a daughter of God, is called by God, is loved by God. And we are challenged to see the person in the cubicle next to us differently, right? If God is the subject and we're not the subject, that person is not defined by their relation to us, how they affect us, how they impact us. They are defined by their relationship to God who loves them and calls them. So Susan is not the annoying close talker who makes the office smell weird with her fake vanilla candles, okay? That's how she affects us. No, Susan is the one who is seen and loved and called by God. That's who she is. Clark is not the slimy one who bends the rules and is always trying to climb the corporate ladder at all costs. No, Clark is the one who's been bent double because of the hurt that he's experienced in his life. And he needs to know that God sees his hurt and loves him and wants to heal him. And this calling, this naming, this healing, and this sending happens not in spite of our weaknesses, but often through our weakness. I wanna encourage each of us to live in and lean into our weakness this week. So counterintuitive. Where are the places where the gods, you need God the most and it's obvious? Lean into that, that personality quirk. Lord, I know you're gonna use that personality quirk for something. I've never figured out what it is, but you're gonna use it, right? Or gosh, I have such brokenness in my past. We often think, oh, if I could just get over that, if I could just get past that, if I for, could forget about that. But what if the answer is, Lord, will you figure out how to put that back together in some way that I can't even see? I can't even realize. As we lean into our weakness, we are participating in God's plucking up, his pulling down, his destroying, and his overthrowing, as well as his building and planting. Amen.